Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on 12 Years a Slave, the new Steve McQueen movie. And joining me in the Slate studios in New York is Aisha Harris. Hello, Aisha. Hi. And Forrest Wickman. Hi, Forrest. Hey, Dana. You guys are both culture bloggers for Slate, contributors mm-hmm. for Slate. You're also both knee-deep right now in the slave narrative on which this movie is based. So before we get started, well, very first, I'm going to ask you for a quick reaction, and then I want you guys to give us a little bit of background on the true story that this movie is based on. Um, so we saw this together last night, and it's funny, usually coming out of a movie with people that I'm planning on spoiling it with the next day, we have to kind of restrain ourselves from over-talking it and, uh, and sort of say, all right, hold it, hold it back, save it for the spoiler. And this time, because of the nature, I think, just of the content of the movie, nobody seemed inclined to talk about it at all. So I really have no idea what you guys' reaction was. So you want to give me just a, a quick reaction? Yeah, this movie left me pretty pretty wrecked. It was, I think it's pretty devastating. Um, I think it's... Uh, great and and um, somewhat because there's not a lot else in my opinion. Um, pretty easily, you know, the greatest big um, American movie about slavery. Um, and you know, as uh, going into it as as a McQueen movie, I like his first two movies. I think more more than most people. And this is not as like aesthetically overwhelming as his previous movies, but I think it's good that he holds back a little bit and doesn't, you know, risk uh, aesthetizing it too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, t- I definitely want to talk a little bit about his his last two movies and set up who Steve McQueen is, not the car racing right. movie star, but the yeah. filmmaker. For those who haven't seen one of his first two movies, which were much smaller releases and are mm-hmm. less likely to have been seen by our listeners than this one. Aisha, what about you? Yeah, it was um, very, very just... I this that was how I felt yesterday was I couldn't even say anything I was like I I don't I don't know how I'm reacting I'm feeling all these emotions um I haven't seen Hunger or Shame yet this is my first Steve McQueen movie um I find it interesting that you said that it's not as aesthetically overwhelming because I when I went back and thought about it I just had all of these very specific images and and kind of pictures in my head that just stuck with me and maybe they might not have been like very overwhelming but or at least aesthetically, but emotionally, I think that they kind of stuck with me. So, yeah. Yeah, I should say, if you haven't seen a Steve McQueen movie, that's that's very relative. Uh, this movie is pretty stylish, but his first couple movies are uh, very stylistically bold with uh, many, many more long takes than this movie has. Um, and it, I remember one of the criticisms of his first movie, Hunger, which is uh, about the hunger strikes uh, in Ireland, also with Michael Fassbender, was that he aestheticizes even like the uh, like shit that's uh, smeared across the wall in one of the cells, almost as if it's a painting or something. And and that guy was a revolutionary, so it's some, like maybe somewhat less objectionable in that case. Um, but I don't think he does that kind of thing here. So yeah, much. I mean, I, I think before this movie, I had pretty much not liked Steve McQueen as a director. I had regarded him primarily as a delivery system for Michael Fassbender, mm-hmm. who I discovered in, in Hunger yeah. in his debut film, and who is in this movie as well, and who works with him incredibly. I think they they work incredibly well together. But those movies were too painterly to me. They were too painterly and aestheticized. And there's something... We'll get to, to whether or not this happens in this movie at times, but there's something about Steve McQueen's relationship to his audience that's a little bit sadistic at times. How much can you take? Mm-hmm, you know, totally. and watching Michael Fassbender slowly starve to death in hunger is sort of an example of that. Yeah, I do think that makes somewhat more sense in this movie. So you, you asked in part, I also want to get your full reaction to this movie. Um, very quickly, you asked in part about uh, putting this movie in the context of the slave narrative that it's based on. Uh, surprisingly, one of my main reactions ended up being, and I suspect this is probably very different from what you guys' experience was but uh seeing it i was 
uh, sort of surprised how restrained it felt to me uh, for most of the first couple hours because, you know, in the book, there's just constant whippings because that's just the reality of the life. And 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 uh, in this movie, he like mostly I mean, he, he the first time there's a big whipping, he, you don't really see it like the camera holds on it, but you don't see like the welts and the flesh like coming off the back. And that's his back. And that's something I imagined reading the book. And um, so I felt like he did show some restraint and not really dwelling on the full horror of that until really the last horrible, horrible whipping in this movie. Well, let's talk about the story that it's based on quickly. The story of Solomon Northup, the the slave who was abducted from freedom and kept in slavery for 12 years. Um, you just finished reading that mm-hmm. that narrative. And Aisha, you've been in touch with Henry Louis Gates, who was the historical consultant yes. for the movie. Yes. So, I mean, we don't have to get into splitting hairs about whether every fact was shown, but somebody coming to this movie saying, who the heck is Solomon Northup? Mm-hmm. Give them his story. Yeah, it's, uh, the short answer is that almost everything you see in this movie, with only minor exceptions, is true, in some cases verbatim, from the book. Um, and there's some, you know, questions about the accuracy of, of the, the narrative um, uh, in, in academic circles. But uh, I think that the broad outlines are, are widely considered to be true. Um, so Solomon Northrop uh, was a freedman in New York uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, his father was freed by his master, I believe also in New York, definitely in the northeastern United States, United States. Um, when his master died, he put it in his will to free him. Um, so uh, Northrop had been free all of his life and mostly lived in uh, New York. And you What know, did he work as? Because the movie doesn't, doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. I, you know what? He, so he did work uh, a little bit as, as a violinist um, outside of just the one engagement that he did in the movie. But I think mostly he did various things. So he, um, he did work on some sort of project on a river, you know, getting lumber down it or something, very much That's like right. he, he eventually that. does in right. the movie, and he he did right. later as a slave. Um, I th- and I think a lot of carpentry. Um, so I don't remember exactly, but that, that kind of thing. And so then what happens in the movie anyway, and tell me if this is true or not, is that he... As he plays as a violinist part-time, and he contracts with these two white men who, who run some kind of traveling circus, kind of like mm-hmm. a sideshow, to come and accompany something on violin. And when that happens, if I understood the scene right, they drug his drink, right? And then he wakes up in a cell, shackled, and is subsequently taken down south. Yeah, that was definitely the, the impression that I got. Um, I mean, Forrest, you could speak to it more because you actually read the book, but it makes pretty clear in the film that, like, they're all sitting at the table, and there's, like, a moment where the two guys look at each other, kind of glance at each other, um, and then pour him more to drink, and he's keeps drinking and then later on he the imagery is like boozy kind of dissolved type things uh, going on with the camera and he feels sick and wakes up the next morning in shackles yeah and that is very much like the book it it is ambiguous in the book northrop never says for sure whether they were involved or whether um where yes he wakes up in shackles with this guy birch and whether it was just birch or whether whether somehow he just got sick and i don't know exactly how but was abducted in the streets or something He, he never you know fully accuses those two guys but they definitely seem suspicious considering they were making him drink and uh, he does, in the book, deny very strongly that it was um, just drunkenness. He says, you know, he had these horrible ha- headaches and it was a sickness un- unlike just a hangover or something. 
So he's subsequently, along with several other slave, uh, several other free blacks who have been kidnapped, and are taken down, sold I at think, auction in the I South. I think not all of them were free. I got somewhat more of the impression that, that they had all been kidnapped in the movie and that they had been free. And I, I, I think some of them may have um, – so, so, for example, uh, Eliza, um, who's played by Adepero Aduye, um, from Pariah. I think she had just been with a kinder master. So, so they had all been in the northeast, northeast at the very least, and so their situations had been a lot better before they were sold to this really cruel guy who sold them south. So we don't know, in fact, the status of the rest of the people that he basically wakes up with in shackles. I don't right? think so. Because I, th- I, I think um, Eliza's character, she has that one monologue that they flash back to where she, yeah. she mentions that maybe she was married to her master or was sleeping with her? I, don't, I didn't quite understand that part. Yeah, so she was with uh, a master who was much more kind and and this is all, uh, I, I, as I recall, it's all in the movie just as it was um, it, according to Northup. She was with a master who was much more kind. Uh, the mistress, uh, I believe it was, was much less kind and she eventually you know, took them and said she was coming to give them their freed papers um, but what she actually did was just to sell them to this cruel guy, Birch. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We haven't mentioned yet that so Solomon Northup, the, the main character, is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, mm-hmm. right? So as long as we're getting into the movie now, I guess maybe we can't go through and, and go, go through right. every single fact. But if, if there is a salient fact that you want to make a, a comment on as we go, please do, Forrest, because you're our, you're our Northup fact checker here. <laughs> so, they, so they all get taken down. Is it, is it New Orleans where they're sold? Uh, yes. Uh, it's Well, it's... I believe it's New Orleans. They definitely end up in Louisiana. Yeah, they. One of the uh, slaves on the ship, I think, mentions that that's where they're going next. Um, once they wherever was it Georgia where they where he originally was found in shackles. Or maybe so he's told that. that. So he's eventually told that he's his name is Platt and that he's from Georgia, um, which is the story that you know probably was given by those two guys to Birch. Um, but uh, yeah, he I, he was never actually in Georgia. Okay. Got yeah. It. So they all find themselves down south, and the scene of the auction is one that I wanted to mention because I think it's one of the first moments that this movie really starts to set itself apart from yeah. other historical dramas. Um, that just the way that this this auction is filmed is quite unexpected. For one thing, it's in a house, which I found kind of odd. Mm-hmm. It's in kind of mm-hmm. like a nice bourgeois house, and there's music. Right? They've got him playing violin, and I think another guy mm-hmm. playing an instrument too. So there's this feeling about it that it's sort of like almost like a fine art auction or something. Yeah. Uh, there's also the fact that a lot of the slaves, I think most of them, are standing around naked, and I was wondering about that too. Is it true that slaves were auctioned off naked? Because when you see old kind of Civil War etchings and things like that, people are usually on an outdoor kind of raised auction block in clothes. Uh, that, but that, maybe that was just the convention of portrayal at the time. Yeah, that definitely happened. You know, as it's um, related in the book, they were clothed until they were asked in, in many, many cases to take off their clothes for sort of a closer inspection. So the fact that they're naked, among other things, was one of the first moments for me that some Holocaust imagery was sort of invoked. You know, that in a lot of films about the Holocaust, there's that same contrast between the powerless naked and the powerful clothed. But then another thing that was really, I mean, unforgettable that I was thinking of this morning when I first woke up is the moment that the Eliza character is separated from her two children by mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch, right, who's the first of several masters who acquires mm-hmm. the Chiwetel Ejiofor character. 
Um, and and the question of whether or not her two young children are going to be sold with her, and the way that was treated, it was just so remarkably unsentimental and harrowing. Yeah. I mean, speaking of representations of the Holocaust in this movie, I mean, in Schindler's List, I'm not going to you know bag on Schindler's List here, but in Schindler's List, that moment of separating from the children, I think, would have been accompanied by swelling music. Mm-hmm. The camera would have been in close up on the children's faces and the mother's face, and there's something so kind of cruel and austere in the way McQueen films it. There's no music so that essentially the music is the sound of these screaming children reaching for their mother. It's the only kind of sound well, the, you hear. the only music the, is the happy. Right. Yeah. Well, then, right. And the then, very ironic. Then Solomon starts sort of playing louder, presumably to kind of drown out the children's sounds. But also the camera doesn't even stay on them. It kind of moves away from the children and you see the mother being mm-hmm. taken away and they're not even on screen. So it's just a really painful moment where the camera kind of enacts the separation itself. That was one thing that I that really stood out to me throughout throughout the, the entire film was his his use of sound and and the way and especially in that scene where like the camera moves away from from the women the Eliza and her children but you still hear them screaming in the background and then later on it kind of parallels her crying that she she eventually she gets to the point where like she just can't stop crying once they've been moved to the next um plantation away from her children and when they're in a church and like you just it overlaps like it goes from one scene and then you see that they're having their church session and she's still crying it's just like it was just very powerful and moving the way like these kind of isolated moments of sound were were, were portrayed. Yeah, I completely I, agree. The sound design is really sophisticated in this movie. And mm-hmm. if, if the score the score is by Hans Zimmer, who's sort of often overused in movies, right? He's the a, score he's, was so the score great, is beautiful. Though. It's really it restrained. Great. It's basically the, the, a little four chord four tone mm-hmm. piano theme that comes back again and again. But it's not overused. There's really a lot of scenes, including the one the very awful, hard-to-watch scene where he's sort of quasi-hung, right? Where Northup yeah. is put in this noose, but his toes can still touch the ground, and he's sort of inches from being hung. Basically, it's a punishment that p- the horrible Paul Dano character, who we'll get to later, mm-hmm. inflicts on him. But during that scene, the only sound is the natural sound of the plantation, the voices of people going by, the crickets chirping. The kids playing in the background as he's hanging. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was... Yeah, they just can't do anything about him hanging there because they'll get in trouble. It's really horrible. It, yeah, um, just one quick thing about the score while we're on it. I, I also loved the score. My one reservation about it is that it is almost exactly the same theme that uh, the main theme, that four chord thing you mentioned. It's almost exactly the same four chords um, as both Inception as, and the Thin Red Line. He's <laughs> just been it using it familiar. over. <laughs> yeah, when I saw the trailer... Um, I was like, oh, weird, they're using the theme from Inception in this. And then I put that like in my post, and somebody in the comments was like, no, this is the theme from The Thin Red Line. And then I went back and listened, and I honestly could not tell what it was, because they are so similar. And I, I think Hans it was... Zimmer, one of Hollywood's foremost film composers, was plagiarizing himself. Yeah. It's a scandal. Yeah, I mean, you know, John Williams did it on a lot of his best scores, too. It, yeah. it, it, At any it rate, happens. it's very effective. And the way, yes, I think yeah. it's played on violin a lot of the time, too, mm-hmm. which kind of echoes his his instrument. It's kind of like a, it's a very simple, sort of almost like a Civil War ditty sounding song. Um, other remarkable moments that you guys want to get to as he progresses through, so he goes to Benedict Cumberbatch, who, sad to say, this guy who separates his ch- the children from the mother at the beginning is actually the kindest of the yeah. three or four masters that own him throughout the film. Yeah, the, the movie's treatment of that character was pretty remarkable and, and, and also a, a significant difference from the book in that in the book, um, Northrop says things like, this was the kindest, gentlest, you know, most Christian man I ever 
I ever met. And he doesn't even just say in the South. He just says like the, it, you know, that he couldn't. This guy Ford couldn't possibly break out of his context. And and you get the sense that he's clearly better than the other people in the movie. But there are, he's like constantly undercut, and you constantly see his his hypocrisy. Like it, it, just like in that um, sort of brilliant use of sound you mentioned, Aisha, where he's giving his sermon, and it's you know this kind Christian sermon, but all you can hear in the background is Eliza's you know wails about being separated from her family. So I, I thought that was was very powerful. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the things that really stood out from all the other slavery-themed movies that I've seen is that, like, it doesn't it doesn't paint it in one broad stroke. You get all these dynamics of, of what slavery in the South looked like. Because a lot of times you see either it's just a simple black and white, the, the masters are evil, 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 they're all, like... They're, there's no no hope for them, and then the the, the slaves are like helpless and, and and completely just victimized. And then in other cases, you 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 see if you're if you're looking at black exploitation films from the 1970s that are slavery themed, you see um, kind of these hypersexualized rape, what we would consider rape today, but like they kind of make it seem like oh the white master is in love with the black slave. And here you just get all these different nuances you get you get all of those things but there there's no right or wrong black or white every character has has a flaw some some are worse than others obviously Epps's character um Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender's character. Who's the second is, owner who gets him from Benedict Cumberbatch. Right. Is by far, he's he's the the evil of the evil but it it, it just it doesn't it, it just to me, and also the fact that Alfred Woodard's character, you see something like that, where this is a black, former black slave who decided that she was, she would have a relationship with her white master, and now she kind of benefits from the fruits of that. And like, you don't read about that in school. You don't read about the fact, the fact that people like Solomon Northup existed, that there were in the mid 19th century um, black Americans who did live well and. Granted, they still face racism, obviously, but they, they, we, not all of us were, you know, enslaved and not all of us were, were destitutes. There were, there was a a middle class or a middle class within the black uh, population. And that's something that, that without ever being overly kind of underlined and made too salient is, is really effectively developed in the movie, I think, which is his difference from the culture of slavery that he is kidnapped into, right? And one of the most powerful moments of that for me is after the burial. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of the guy who drops dead in the field. That's a horrible That's Stroy scene. Howard's character, yeah. right? Yeah. From, from Peace of the Southern Wild, the guy who played the father. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. He has a very small role. So, so he plays a, a slave who we don't really get to know at all until he just drops dead picking cotton one day. And after they bury him, they, they all gather together and sing the spiritual. And I just thought it was incredibly well communicated that that wasn't Solomon Northup's culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment that he kind of starts to sing along. And it's it's both kind of inspiring and beautiful and, and horrible because it's sort of a moment that he's giving himself over and saying, I am a slave now. I have yeah. only the pleasures of a slave. And uh, and I thought that moment was beautifully acted and really painful. Yeah, totally agree. That in the in the book, he it, he there's a similar um process of him pretty clearly sort of becoming plat in 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 a lot of ways and and developing even like a fondness because he's starving for the little scraps that he gets. Um but yeah, it's like most most of that work I think is put on that one scene and and is Edgia 4 in particular is pretty amazing in that scene, I think. 
So yeah, just one quick thing about Dwight Henry, who I think we may have said is Dwight Howard, and then I'll I'll realize that yeah. you know that's the basketball player. <laughs> um, wrong, Dwight H. Um, is uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting how quickly he's dispatched with, and he's one of a lot of pretty recognizable characters in this movie who just come and go, and, and I feel like maybe some people could potentially view that as a weakness, and I do wonder if there's a lot more footage that wasn't used, but I also thought it was really powerful to have them very recognizable and then sort of totally hum- you know, dehumanized or dispatched with so arbitrarily, and I thought you know, and that well, is what Wallace, it was like for a lot of Wallace, Wallace from Beast of the Southern Wild is in there, and I didn't example. recognize her because, again, she is never shown in close-up. She yeah. plays Solomon Northup's daughter, who is essentially sort of a background kid, you know, so he really got some pretty big names for tiny roles. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's nearly as, as kind of distracting as, let's say, The Butler, where it's just kind of like we're going to trot out all these. And I think the, the level of stardom in here is, is not as as... A-list, you would say, or, or glitzy as the butler. I feel like a lot of people who show up, Paul Giamatti, um, I believe Sal from Mad Men is, appears too. Remember? I'm not a Mad Men watcher. So are either of you Mad Men? I'm a Mad Men Sal, watcher, but I don't know if I recognize it. Sal no. was the, the, gay, the, like, the main gay character for like the first two or three seasons. Okay, I've missed some he, seasons. Okay, so he, he, he I, if I'm correct, he showed up as um, one of the, 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 very briefly as a slave owner. Um, I think it's when, after um, Epps' crops go bad and he brings them to that other guy, that was that was Sal, if if I'm absolutely correct. Um, yeah, but, among the abductors is Taryn Killam from SNL, who's yeah. sort of surprising to see yeah, was, in a role like that. That was so weird. But you know, something that I really kind of appreciated, it almost seemed like a cruel joke on, on Steve McQueen's part, is just that essentially all the white characters in this movie disappear completely as mm-hmm. soon as they're not useful anymore, right? I mean, exactly the way that black characters have traditionally been treated in Hollywood films. So every yeah. owner, every sort of the guy that says that he'll carry the letter for him and then betrays him, all these characters right. don't really get a chance to, to reappear and either, you know, apologize or suffer any sort of justice. They just drop out of the narrative entirely. Yeah. So we should maybe get to uh, how Northup goes from Ford's plantation, the, the Cumberbatch plantation, to the main, you know, sort of last plantation where this movie spends most of the last 30 minutes or which so. Which is Epps Plantation, which is owned Epps, by the Fassbender character. Owned by Fassbender. It's a cotton plantation. Which is So it, very briefly, he has a conflict with this guy, uh, Tibbetts, I think is how you say his name, who's played by Paul Dano. In a, um, in a who's, feat of overacting, I might add. Yeah, although I enjoyed it. I always like, Paul Dano is very uh, polarizing, I think. I'm and not I one of those haters. I'm not a Paul Dano hater at all, but I think he overacts significantly in this role. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he's sort of like a very, very lowly carpenter on this plantation, and so they get, and, and is also just like a horribly racist person, and so they get into fights, and eventually it becomes um, sort of untenable for Northrop to be at the same plantation as him, oh, which that, is how. Yeah. Sorry, manager. That was also one of my favorite moments was his singing and clapping. That yeah. montage. Real another song, great. Apparently. Yeah, another great use of of sound where you have like the his his. Um, I don't remember how the song went, but it's it was... it's it's run and word run. Oh yeah. And apparently, it's it's a song that it comes off as you know very threatening in the in the movie is how I took it, and I guess it was also. You know, popular amongst slaves and peoples of color, people of color. Yeah. Well, see, I'm going to sound the first note of dissent in this spoiler and say that I thought that moment was a little bit overplayed. There's a few moments, just aesthetically mm. speaking, when I think McQueen mm-hmm. kind of gilds the lily, and I think that was one of them. Not the song itself, and maybe it was. It was also that I think Dano was kind of you know, like sinking his teeth a little <laughs> bit too gleefully into the role of the, mm-hmm. the racist overseer. But I thought that carrying that whole through the entire montage 
felt like a little bit of, of, of lily gilding. Oh, I love it. I could it. see I that. I liked it. <laughs> uh, it Were was maybe moments? more entertaining to me than it should have been to just have to watch such a villain. But in the, I mean, in the, it, it, maybe it didn't bother me quite as much because in the narrative, that character is like an incredible villain of history that it seems was really like that. And the same with Epps, who is actually even more horrible in the book in the sense that the one thing you don't see in this movie that is probably the worst thing in the book uh, is not just how much he whips like you know all day long he used to be an overseer but I guess at night among in addition to getting drunk and making everybody dance um, he would also just get all of the slaves up in the middle of the night and just start whipping them for fun uh, oh god yeah this book, I mean, if the book is more the, hardcore than the movie, I don't think I'm going to go and read it as I was previously. It's not to. quite as, you know, viscerally shocking. But, um, yeah, it's very... Powerful. I mean, I guess you just don't visually see it unfolding mm-hmm. before you, but the descriptions sound pretty terrible. I mean, Fassbender really speak about not overacting. I mean, I think he's really, really intense in that role of mm-hmm. the psycho slave owner. But there's not a moment that I feel he's chewing the scenery. I just felt like he was he was a very alive, present actor who also, as he does in Shame really well, too, kind of is good at, at telegraphing a sort of counter emotion with his eyes. You know, you sort of mm-hmm. see the part of yeah. him before he was essentially corrupted by slavery yeah. that might have been a sympathetic person. Yeah. He has great drunk acting in this, too, I will quickly quickly say. Like, he's very good at, I don't know how he does it, but his eyes, you know, totally go glassy when he's wasted in the middle of the night. We should talk about his toxic relationship with the slave, Patsy, which is really mm-hmm. the central, aside from anything involving Chiwetel Ejiofor's character, is really the central relationship of the movie. Um, okay, well, Patsy is played by, and forgive me if I say this incorrectly, uh, Lupita Nyong'o. And um, she, to me, was... was amazing in this role and her character kind of serves as the the one slave in the house who the mistress or she's not the mistress the wife of um of Epps and I cannot remember the actress's name it's Sarah Paulson Sarah Paulson um who just envies her because she knows how much that Epps lusts after her and there's that great scene where um she tells him like you're either going to like beat her, get rid of her, or whatever, or I'm going. And Epps is like, well, I will let go of you before I let go of her. Um, And she just kind of serves as this very, I don't want to say tragic, but it is kind of, it is, it read to me very tragic, but not in that kind of melodramatic way, like in this very realistic way that, how would I know I did not live during slavery, but it seemed to be very humanistic and her scene, especially with um, Solomon's character where she asked him to kill her. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. That scene is was, really hard to watch. It was so hard to watch. And and after that happened, after everything that happens after that, especially the, the that climatic whipping after she went to uh, the other plantation to get some soap because she wanted to clean herself because the mistress won't let her bathe because she's so jealous of her when she comes back and and is and uh, Epps whips her like I just kept thinking you should have just killed her you should have just killed her when she asked you I thought and, she and, was going to die in that scene I, I actually thought, thought mm-hmm. that I, I was really really afraid that when he makes Solomon whip her that that would be like the fatal blow and that he would have killed her right so did I because it, it kind of I felt like it kind of set it up for that where it's like I, I refused to kill you then but I thought maybe he was like well maybe I'll just do it now even though to me that's a worse than what she asked him to do which was like slit her throat and drown her um 
but I, I couldn't help it during that whipping scene, especially right after when they're when they're cleaning off her bruises and she's screaming. There's a, there's one moment where you get a close up of of Solomon and he has like one tear, and immediately I went to like this is like glory, glory. this is like glory, but like so much more harrowing because if I remember glory correctly, like you do you never see his back, or if you do, it's not nearly as like bloody like in this film you see there's just like a very short moment where you see him whipping her and you see the flesh just like mm-hmm. flying off and I was just like wow I couldn't help but compare it to, to Glory and to, to Django Unchained and, and Roots and every other slavery themed movie I've seen because they do have that common theme but this just felt it just hit me in a way that n- none of those other movies ever did. I think. Part- Why is that? I know. I completely agree. And you, you don't have a sense that. Um, I don't know what how I would characterize the, the feeling in maybe a roots whipping scene, but you mm-hmm. don't have the feeling that you're being served some kind of like symbolic lesson, right? I mean, you really have the feeling that you're witnessing human yeah. suffering. Yeah. I I don't know. I think there are a lot of reasons for it. For, I mean, first of all, I, I don't actually know how they filmed that sequence. It's like the second big bravura sequence of the whole movie after the slave auction in the sense that it's another really, really long shot. And I- including all of that, I, I guess, makeup work, maybe they use CGI. I don't know, to show her, her the flesh like flying off. Uh, her back. Um, in the, in the book, it is described as by far the. I mean, I don't know if by far, but the worst whipping he ever sees. He describes her as being quote literally flayed, um, and and so you get that same sense. And I and I do think part of it too is that the movie doesn't show the flesh flying off the back, as I said earlier, for the other scenes. You know, when that guy breaks his paddle over over Northup's back earlier, and then takes out the cat. You you just see, you know, him flinching. And I think that's mostly what you see in Glory, too. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of reasons where it really, really... I mean, I, I felt a lot of people... It hurt a lot of people sniffling during that scene. I will say that I think there was another tiny, tiny moment of directorial overkill at the end of that scene. I mean, how much more horrible can it be than what you've already witnessed with the whipping of the of Patsy's character? But then when he cuts to the soap on the ground to remind mm-hmm. you that it was all about soap, that just seemed like a moment of, you know, just putting in a final nail that didn't really need to be put in. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. In fact, one of the other big, like, stylistic moments, which I really liked... Um, it came right after that, and I suspect maybe you wouldn't have liked it because it is a little more showy. Is we get this long shot of Northup, um, where he just he's looking around, and then eventually he just turns and he basically looks at the camera. I think for ten, it felt like an eternity, but for a long time, several seconds. Are you talking about the shot, the close up of his face after he sent the letter with the Brad Pitt yeah, character? Yeah, it's right. Oh, I loved around that, that shot. I okay, loved that I shot. loved it too, yeah. and, and it was. Yeah, I mean, it just felt I like all of a sudden he turned at the there, audience and, and, like, looked at the audience, looked at me. And, you know, at that moment, I had this real, like, I, I kind of only realized it afterwards, but it was like, that was Northrop looking at me. That was not Chuatology at four. And that's an amazing trick to pull off, I think. But both for, you know, McQueen and Edgy of four. It's very bold to ever have a character look mm-hmm. directly at the camera. And that's only for a second of that shot that he does. But I, I thought that shot was really powerful. And the movie, I, I'm glad that it ended where it did end, which we'll get to. But I think mm-hmm. it could also have effectively ended yeah. right there. Real quick, what did you guys think of Brad Pitt 
in that in that role. Well, we should briefly say who he is. So, <laughs> yeah. so in this lineup of interchangeable white dudes that keep coming in and out of Solomon's life, he is the last and the, the first one to really offer him any help whatsoever. So he's this kind of Amish-looking dude, although they never say that he is Amish. Yeah, he's, he's from, he's from Canada. Canada. He's from he does Canada. have an odd beard where he has this thick, brushy beard all around his cheeks and, and then like hat. a very neatly shaved mustache area. And for reasons that aren't clear, he's actually working... For Michael Fassbender's character as well, for Epps, right? He's helping yeah. to construct this little house so on the property. His, in, the historical person apparently was named Bass, and he was a carpenter. He was from Canada and was, you know, you get the sense, pretty much the only guy in the South who was uh, an abolitionist. And he's described as a contrarian who everybody, he can get around in the South because he's, like, very charming about the way he argues. And people think he's not really sincere, that he's just arguing that black is white for for its own sake. Um and uh, but you know he puts his money where his mouth is eventually and mails the letter for right um, so he is essentially the agent finally of Solomon being able mm-hmm. to get out because his free papers are then brought down by a white man that he knows from up north and uh, and we don't really get the details of exactly how legally he's gotten out of there right but um but he's yeah it took up. months and months and months um to it, it, that bass guy even was going to just go up to new york himself because they weren't getting any responses so there's a lot that's alighted there almost more than anywhere but nothing really important i, I would say well wait what did you think of brad pitt aisha yeah um so i i, I guess i kind of got to the point once his character showed up and i realized that he was a real character um that scene he had with um, Epps, where he's talking about how, you know, the black people are, should be treated the same and everything. At first it felt a little, I don't know, a little too after-school special to me. Um, but overall, I I I kind of looked at it from, from a, a bigger perspective, and especially this idea of the... Um, if we want to talk about it, the exceptional Negro, if you want to get into that, I don't know if we do. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's um, close on talking about that. Okay, so there there have been some who have, have, who have criticized uh, Solomon Northup's story as kind of promoting this idea of the ex- exceptional Negro because there are very few slave narratives by slaves who were free and then sold into slavery. Most of them are slaves who were born into it and then were trying to get out. Um, and so there's this perception that perhaps, like, and and throughout the movie, there are instances where it kind of feels like he's he says like I'm not supposed to be here, like I I'm free, and like he says at one point something along the lines to to Brad Pitt's character actually is like if if justice was served, I wouldn't be here or something along those lines, and you get to the question of like well, is this a movie that's supposed to like be meant for the masses and meant to say slavery was bad for everyone or is it supposed to say that some people some slaves deserved it and some people shouldn't have been there like they were free already and I I struggled with that while I was watching the movie but then when I thought about it there were all these moments that that don't that don't apply to that and the fact that you kind of see Solomon go through this, this kind of realization like no, I am just another nigger. Like <laughs> this is how they treat me, and 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 he kind of goes through that transformation over time, and suddenly just kind of, I think McQueen handled it, and and Edgy Four handled it really well in terms of like making him realize like I am in their eyes, I am no different, and we are kind of all the same. So hey, well, I, indeed, he was hiding his education and his right. real identity mm-hmm. throughout most of the movie, right, for fear of being singled out for for being exceptional. Exactly. 
Yeah, I totally agree. That was uh, one of the biggest concerns I had going into this this movie, and I thought it it just really pulls um, it off so well. How he becomes, and then, I guess the other concern I had is that you know this is also one of the few stories about slavery that ends uh, happily. You could say, but you know, getting to the end of the movie when he gets back, and maybe you guys had a different read on this. Um, um, maybe it was different for me having read the book, but the movie to me didn't play it as like this big happy reunion so much. It, oh I mean, my it was God, happy, no. but it's mostly the main thing I got out of the final scene. And this is not the emphasis in the book, but I think it is the right place for this movie to end. It's just the loss of those twelve years. So you see, you know how his daughter has has grown up so much that she now this little girl, this person who was a little girl, has her own son who's named Solomon and. Um, oh, the fact he's just, named Solomon and he repeats the name. Yeah, oh my right, god! Right out of the book too. Um, yeah, so it just ended up, and he keeps talking about like I'm sorry for the bitterness of this moment, but this is very bitter for me. And I and and I think that's the note to end on for this movie. Not like well, and then racism ended. <laughs> yeah, the end is one of the most devastating things in the movie, even though it is ostensibly happy. I mean, it couldn't be happier in a way, right? This entire time you've seen him longing for his family, and the last shot is literally just his family mm-hmm. in a group hug. You know, just like in this huddle, all sobbing together. And I think the very last lines of the movie are, are him saying, "Forgive me," mm-hmm. and his wife saying, "There's nothing to forgive." Right, yeah. and you're just—I mean—the entire audience, I'm sure, was just like in a puddle at that point. But at the same time, there's not any sense of, of resolution or justice, mm-hmm. including in the little Inclu- legends that yeah. happen afterwards that tell the rest of the story of Solomon Northup, right? Who, who went ended up going on the lecture circuit as an abolitionist, but who never found justice against his kidnappers or against his owners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't even allowed to testify against them as a black man. And that had to do with where he had been abducted, or. Do you know in the north of the I don't I mean it's as it happens in the book but I don't I didn't know like the the legal rules of the time enough to know whether that was just because of the state or whether it was right? uh, yeah Another remarkable thing is that the very last legend you see is that the time and, condi- and circumstances of his death are not known, which given that, you know, as you say, Aisha, I mean, he was kind of an exceptional case that became this kind of famous, you know, lecturer on, on slavery and abolition. Is, is, is just, I mean, it's just a moment that you realize that, you know, even the most important black man in the mid-19th century was not important enough to go down in history. All right. Well, this has been an extremely long spoiler, but a really interesting one. But I think we should should wrap it up soon. I think we should at least nod, as tacky as I feel even mentioning this, to the fact that this movie is being positioned as a big Oscar contender. And I'm just wondering how, what you guys think both about, you know, its possible reception among audiences. Is this going to play? I mean, we talked about The Butler. When The Butler came out, you and I spoiled it, Aisha. And that's so much more of a crowd pleaser and so much more of like a leaves you so much more of an up place than this movie. At the same time, I think this is this movie is really powerful and could have really, really wide appeal. Anyway, I'm just wondering what, what you all think of that. And if, if you can imagine Lupita Nyong'o in a couture gown at the Oscars, right. it's really, really strange to imagine a movie that sort of, you know, goes this deep into the raw, you know, suffering of slavery being, you know, on the on the Hollywood gossip circuit, but it, it's going to be. Yeah, and th- I mean, these movies have also done really, really well. So I, I hope this, this is, as you said, is definitely darker than The Bartler and less entertaining than Django Unchained, as horrifying as that movie can be at times. Um, but it, and in some ways is is very close to Schindler's List, which was basically a blockbuster. So I hope that it catches on like that. This doesn't have as an uplifting an ending as Schindler's List, and it's better for it. Um, but you know, I do think that Fassbender and this movie and those two supporting actresses maybe both um, have. And she would tell Edge for as well. And Edge for yeah, definitely. Sorry, um, it, you know, have it's. I think they have nominations coming their way at, the, at least. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll be curious to see how um, the media responds to it in terms of like I feel like unlike Django Unchained and a lot of other movies this might be difficult for people to try to parody or try to you know make fun of because it's it's just so so harrowing and and one person behind me at the movie theater a couple a couple seats behind me um he, old guy was just like right after he was like I think I told you guys this and I tweeted this he was like oh man like I, I couldn't even stand all this for 12 minutes much less 12 years and I was like well <laughs> I don't know don't really know how to feel to that response but I guess after seeing that you're going to respond in some way and that was the way it was was just kind of like not really appropriate but I guess honest reaction to all of this um you're being so. too kind towards that reaction. I think that that reaction sucks. There's a there's a great scene in the movie <laughs> where one of one white man is is lowered to slavery and he's just complaining to That's Northrop true. for a couple minutes about how hard his day was and Northrop is just listening to him and kind of seething and it's a great scene it, it of, great. of like white privilege in this movie. Right, and and the guy the guy un- not acknowledging at the end when he says and all I want to do is earn an honest wage and get out of here, right? Yeah, and then yeah. just like the cut totally to the tell space after that. Yeah. Okay, well, guys, thank you for suffering through this movie with me and coming here to talk about it. And I hope we spoil something again very soon. Yeah, Yeah. thanks. Thanks, Dana. All right. Our producer is Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.